Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Eleni Jokas in Dubai. And we begin with a crisis in Ukraine and In Brussels, EU leaders are holding a second day of talks and they've already agreed on an almost total ban on Russian oil imports in response to Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. So far, all of the leaders seem to agree on its principles, according to the European Commission president. Thanks to this, um, Council should now be able to finalise a ban on almost 90% of all Russian oil imports by the end of the year. This is an important step forward. An important step. And meanwhile, in Ukraine's east, the Russian army is set to control part of the key city of Severodonetsk. And that's according to a local military official. But the official denies Russian reports that they have captured the entire city. In the meantime, a ship loaded with 2,500 tons of steel has left the port of Mariupol, bound for Rostov in western Russia, according to a local Russian spokesperson. Now, this video was released by the Russian Defense Ministry. It's the first vessel to depart from the port since Russia took the city. All right, let's go straight to day two of the EU Leaders' Summit. Anna Stewart's following this from London. It was a lot of compromising. Oil was on the table. Gas still seems to be discussed, but it's it's sort of unilateral approaches to what they're doing on the gas front. But give me a sense of whether there was overall agreement on those big items. Well, the real big item was oil, wasn't it? Because it took a month to get everyone on board for an oil embargo. And it was agreed at something like 1 a.m. this morning, but with some big concessions. And the biggest being that it will not include the southern part of the Druzhpa pipeline, which means the landlocked countries of Hungary, Hungary, Slovakia and Czech Republic, who rely on piped oil from Russia, can still get it. There was also, uh, of course, quite a big time frame for this. That was already expected. Six months until the oil embargo takes place uh, in terms of the seaborne oil, eight months for refined products as well. And experts have been quite critical of this time frame because it gives Russia more time to find new customers. And it's had plenty of time, of course, since the invasion and uh, talks about embargoes on oil and gas first took place. Uh, Joseph Burrell, the top EU diplomat, uh, spoke about this, the fact that Russia will likely try and find new customers, and that is out of their control. Take a listen. Certainly we cannot prevent Russia to sell their oil to someone else. We are not so powerful, but we are the most important client for Russia. They will have to look for another one, and certainly they will have to decrease the price. The purpose is for the Russians to get less resources, less financial resources to feed in the war machine. And this certainly will happen. 
He makes some really important points there. The EU is by far Russia's biggest uh, customer when it comes to oil and gas. It would be hard to replace it, uh, frankly. At the moment, the EU pays around $10 billion a month just for Russian oil. Once the embargo does kick in between six to eight months' time, that will reduce down to just $1 billion. And when it does find new customers and it sells that oil on, you can expect an even greater discount in terms of the price than we're already seeing. And right now, Ural's grade oil is trading around $34 a barrel cheaper than crude. So shipping it further away and also finding enough tankers, insurers, bankers to support Russian oil right now is getting increasingly hard for Russia. Eleni? Yeah, incredibly complex uh, supply chain there. And I, I also want you to give me a sense in terms of what's happening with gas, because Gazprom is cut, cutting out certain uh, clients which are not significant mm. enough for them to feel pain. Um, but interestingly, you're also seeing some countries really trying to wean themselves off before gas is sanctioned. Yes, and today, as the EU leaders arrived the second day of the summit, this was a question uh, for lots of them. What about gas? If you're trying to limit how much uh, Russia makes uh, from the EU in terms of energy, shouldn't there be an embargo on that as well? They are trying to reduce that to just by two-thirds at the end of this year. Uh, Of course, they've already said they're going to embargo coal and eventually oil, at least 90% as of yesterday. Um, But in terms of gas, it was interesting hearing from the Prime Minister of Latvia this morning, who essentially said he supports a full embargo on all energy and has done ever since the invasion. Other leaders talked about how Ukraine is paying the price uh, in terms of people and that money really shouldn't matter at this stage. But of course, it's easy to say that for those countries that aren't supporting it. They all say they will move together. And when it comes to winning themselves off gas, they say they will act as a block. I think it's really interesting to note that some countries are refusing to obey Russia's edict to pay for their gas in rubles. Therefore, they have been cut off. So in a sense, some countries are already sort of moving unilaterally on this. So the Netherlands, Bulgaria and Poland already cut off from Russian gas. Lenny? Anna Stewart, really good to see you. Thank you so very much. Now we move to eastern Ukraine. The regional military says Russian forces are now controlling parts of the key city of Severodonetsk. Meanwhile, a senior Ukrainian official telling CNN victory against Russia is unlikely if the U.S. doesn't send long-range rockets. This after President Biden said that he won't ship any weapons that could reach Russian territory. Melissa Bell is live for us in Zaporizhia with more. Uh, Melissa, look, the situation in eastern Ukraine is very delicate right now. Um, Biden saying no long-range missiles that could reach Russia. The Ukrainians are saying that this is going to be make or break for their fight in the east. Could you give us a sense of what is happening on the ground and why the Ukrainians are saying that this is a must to get this kind of weaponry? What's so interesting, Eleni, is I think the wording that's been chosen by uh, President Joe Biden, uh, that he wouldn't be, the United States would not be providing multiple launch, long range rockets that could reach Russia. And that is important because the type of long range rocket that Ukraine desperately needs are the ones that would be useful here, where I'm standing now in Zaporizhia. Uh, Where I'm standing along the Dnieper River, 30 miles to the south, are the first Russian positions. Uh, Vasilivka, one of those towns that so many of those trying to flee back into Ukrainian-held territory uh, have been being held at over the course, held at over the course of the last 24 hours. The point is that uh, at villages like that, but other villages along the front line here on the southern part uh, of that uh, line that now uh, delineates uh, Russian-held Ukraine from the rest of the country, 
What we've been seeing over the course of the last 24 hours and the last few days are cruise missiles hitting Zaporizhia. We've been seeing shelling in some of those villages over the course of the last 24, 48 hours. Uh, we've also seen long-range Russian missiles hitting some of those areas to the south of Zaporizhia. And of course, the feeling here, and it's a good example of what's happening elsewhere along that very long front line now, many hundreds of miles, uh, is that uh, the Russian forces are gaining ground inching forward. We've seen it with the fall of Severodonetsk, or what we believe to be the imminent fall of Severodonetsk, since information is hard to come by. Communications have been cut. What we're hearing is from the Ukrainian side that they're desperately trying to get some of those 15,000 civilians trapped inside the city out and more humanitarian aid in. But it is a story, I think, all along this front line of Russians being for the first time in a while, and we saw that turning point come a few days ago, in a position of having gained the momentum and in a position of being having better manpower, better firepower behind them. And that's something we've been hearing from Ukrainian military intelligence sources. It's something we've been hearing here on the ground, uh, that if they do not get uh, that weaponry that they need, and in particular, uh, those long-range uh, missile, rocket systems, even if they are the ones that can just make it over uh, rivers like this one or further down rivers like this one, uh, they are going to lose this war. And with a certain sense of urgency, we've been hearing that now from Kyiv uh, for the last three or four days with one man from Ukrainian military intelligence telling us, look, this is a country of some 45 million people. There are 140 million people opposite. If we do not get the weaponry we need, this front line that we're seeing now that has been the, that has been the scene of such intense fighting over the course of the last few weeks is going to continue inching forward. And beyond that, Eleni, it's going to continue hardening because that's another part of the story of what we're seeing here in Zaporizhia is that it isn't simply the Ukrainians who are trying to flee Russian-controlled uh, Ukraine that are struggling to get through, but we're increasingly seeing here on this side of the border Border, Ukrainians who are trying to get back to their homes in Mariupol, uh, in uh, Militopol, in Kherson, cities that they had to flee because of the violence. They want to get back now to their relatives and their homes, and they're not being allowed to do it. The border is hardening, Eleni, even as it continues to inch forward. Yeah. Yeah, reality check and definitely the messaging here from the Ukrainians. Really important. Melissa, thank you so much. Now, Russian troops are also closing in on another key city in the Donbass region, Lysychansk. This new video shows a big fire after Russian artillery attacks there. Residents who remain in that city are now preparing for the worst. Nick Payton Walsh went to the front lines in Lysychansk just a few hundred meters from the embattled city of Severodonetsk over the weekend and filed this report for us. This is the last road into Lysychansk. Putin's forces have moved with rare focus here and may soon encircle the pocket of two cities on a river we're driving into. The Ukrainian forces we saw here, mobile, tense, at times edgy. And this is why, across the river here, the besieged city of Severodonetsk, increasingly more in Russian hands, whoever you ask. we can hear the crackle of gunfire down towards the river below. Well, we were told the Russians have tried already to get into town, and it looks like we might be witnessing another attempt over there, that smoke near one of the remaining bridges into the city. Our police escorts shout drone, often used to direct artillery attacks. We are on high ground, exposed and scattered. 
It is a tale of two desperations here. That which makes people stay, and that which makes them finally flee. Leonid is the latter. Some who stay are increasingly angry at what's left of the Ukrainian state here. A young woman was killed here a day earlier by a shell. And locals told us not to film, saying cameras attracted shelling. Russia's bloody persistence and unbridled firepower is bringing the kind of victory in the ruins they seem to cherish. This cinema was a bomb shelter, local officials said. It's unclear if, when their huge airstrike hit, the Russian military was aware it had been emptied days earlier. Just startling how whole chunks of this cinema have been thrown into the crater there. This is just the ferocity of the airstrikes we're seeing here, designed simply to get people out of this town. Those who stay among the shards of glass feel abandoned already. Many, many people, but there is no gas or water or power or anything. We asked the aid workers today when it will all come back, and they said there are only prostitutes, junkies and alcoholics left. That means the aid workers have left here. Lydia is carefully picking up the pieces of the airstrike, which she felt the full force of in her apartment eight floors up. There's an old lady on the first floor and me with my disabled son, she says. He doesn't really understand a war's happening. Retreat lingers in the empty air. If Putin takes here, he may claim he's achieved some of his reduced goals in this invasion. It's now the unenviable choice of Ukraine's leaders. If this is the hill, its men and women will die on. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Lysychansk, Ukraine. And the ongoing war in Ukraine could push inflation even higher over the next few months as a European oil ban against Russia kicks in. New numbers show Eurozone inflation hitting record highs for a seventh straight month, placing further pressure on the ECB to begin raising rates. In the U.S., President Joe Biden assuring Americans in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that he has a plan to bring down prices. We've got Rahel Solomon joining me now. Uh, Rahel, good to see you. I have to say, you know, reading that op-ed, really fascinating. You could sort of get a glimpse of Joe Biden's experience through various cycles, including hyperinflation during his lifetime and draws on those. But he says he can't meddle in what the Federal Reserve will do. Um, and he's going to try and tackle policies that will help bring down inflation. But this can't happen overnight. We know this. This, this takes time. Right, Eleni. These are not short-term fixes. And important to mention that today is the day that many Americans return back to work after the Memorial Day weekend, uh, a holiday weekend where no doubt they notice the higher price for gas, the higher price for food at barbecues. Take a look at Brent crude trading now at about $119 a barrel, hitting the highest level since about 2012. So let's get into this op-ed, right, from The Wall Street Journal. Uh, President Biden saying in part that the most important thing we can do now to transition from rapid recovery to stable, steady growth 
is to bring inflation down. In this plan, he talks about, uh, as you pointed out, Eleni, letting the Fed do its job, essentially saying he will not meddle with the Fed. Uh, He called for Congress to pass clean energy legislation and also said that he will continue to make efforts to uh, further lower the trade deficit. This is not necessarily new information or a new plan, but it is a lot here. And Eleni, what we're seeing is an example of a full court press attempt from the White House to try to manage inflation sort of concerns as we deal with inflation at 40-year highs here in the U.S. I want to play for you a clip from Brian Dees, essentially President Biden's top economic advisor. He spoke to CNN's New Day program this morning. Take a listen. If you step back and you look at the inflation challenge we face, it's clearly global in nature. Uh, we're seeing record high inflation in, the, uh, in Europe, uh, in the UK, in France, in Germany. And it's driven principally by supply chain challenges coming from the restart of the economy and now exacerbated by Putin's war in Ukraine. The real question now is how can we actually address that issue? Now, to be clear, some of the inflation that we're seeing is, yes, global, but some would also argue that part of it is because of fiscal measures taken uh, here in the U.S. Nonetheless, these these methods, not necessarily short-term fixes, as we pointed out, and there's a lot of skepticism about them in general, but we do know, Eleni, that uh, as we continue to hear from the White House more and more often, it seems, these days, it does perhaps help to manage inflation expectations that, one, uh, the White House knows that it is a, a top priority and a concern for many Americans, but that, two, it is going to let the Fed manage uh, with independence. And so that hopefully helping manage inflation expectations. But uh, in the short term, it doesn't appear like there are any quick fixes here. Yeah, it's a tough balancing act when it comes to monetary policy. Rahel Solomon, really good to see you. Thank you so very much. All right, straight ahead, a community prepares to say their final goodbyes to three of the victims in the Robb Elementary School shooting. More from Uvalde, Texas after the break. Welcome back in Uvalde, Texas this morning. Visitation and rosary is set for three of the victims of the massacre at the Robb Elementary School. And with communities on edge in the wake of the shooting, schools across the United States are increasing their security measures. Nick Valencia has the latest. Oh my God. Chilling new video captured an apparent radio call outside Robb Elementary School where a gunman had opened fire inside classrooms. Are you injured? In the video, what sounds like a student says they've been shot. The man who recorded the video, who did not want to be identified, tells CNN the audio came from the radio of a Customs and Border Protection vehicle outside the school in Uvalde, Texas. He said an officer turned off the radio once officers realized he could hear. This, as new dispatch audio obtained by ABC News, indicates dispatchers relayed that at least one student was alive in the classroom. CNN has not been able to independently verify the audio or at what point during the shooting this occurred. Law enforcement's timeline shows that the gunman remained in the classrooms for more than an hour, while at least eight 911 calls were made by at least two students begging for help. Officers had arrived within two minutes, but the commander on the scene decided to wait before confronting the gunman. For the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. 
There's no, no excuse for that. The massacre is one of a string of mass shootings that have left the nation on edge. School districts nationwide are intensifying security protocols, fearing copycat attacks. Like in Buffalo, where a gunman opened fire at a top supermarket, killing 10 earlier this month. New safety protocols include all doors remaining locked during the school day, and any person who wishes to enter must call ahead for approval. Americans are on edge, and they're on edge because they don't know if it's going to be their place of worship, a mall, a concert, their, their children's school. In Uvalde, the community plans for two weeks of funeral services to lay to rest the 21 victims. Uvalde's mayor has decided to postpone a city council meeting in which several new members were to be sworn in, including school police chief Pedro Pete Arredondo. He was elected to the city council earlier this month and reportedly was the official who made the decision not to breach the classrooms while the shooter was locked inside. Arredondo has not spoken to the media since the day of the shooting. The mayor says Arredondo's role in the shooting response will not impact his ability to serve on the council. Arredondo's decision has angered victims' parents, like Amory Joe Garza's father. They needed to act immediately, you know. There's, there's kids involved, you know, there's a gun involved, there's an active shooter wanting to, to do harm. All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. The first named storm in the eastern Pacific region is barreling through southern Mexico with heavy wind and rain. Agatha made landfall Monday as a Category 2 hurricane, the strongest to hit Mexico's Pacific coast in May. It has been downgraded to a tropical depression, but officials say it could still produce life-threatening floods and mudslides. CNN's Patrick Oppmann joins us now with more. Patrick, uh, do we have a sense of just how big of a threat this hurricane is? Well, fortunately, officials have said this morning uh, from Oaxaca State where this uh, hurricane hit as a strong category two, almost a category three, that there are no reports uh, of loss of life so far. Uh, there are thousands of people without power. There are structures that are under, underwater. And of course, uh, even though the, uh, the storm is no longer a hurricane, it is now, as you said, a tropical depression, it'll still bring lots of rain. And that, that is always a, a problem as uh, you can have flooding, you can have mudslides up down power lines. It still remains a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, and what could happen here, it's very interesting, if, if the storm does not dissipate over, uh, over Mexico, if it does go out back out over the open water of the, the Bay of Campeche, uh, it could strengthen again and reform. And as you uh, know, Eleni, uh, storms that are in the Atlantic uh, have different names than the storms that are in the Pacific. So if this storm were to uh, reform, reconstitute, which is still a big if at this point, it would then become... Uh, uh, a tropical storm or Hurricane Alex, uh, and then uh, possibly threaten uh, people uh, along the Gulf of Mexico. But but uh, still remains to be seen whether that will happen. You know, in the start of the official start of hurricane season is only uh, is actually tomorrow. So it really feels uh, very early to be talking so much about hurricanes. But uh, forecasters have warned that this is going to be a very very busy hurricane season, and that is what we are seeing right now. And certainly, uh, officials in Mexico are are just. Being beginning now to really uh, take in the damage that uh, Hurricane Agatha caused there. And, and as I said, it's just uh, not even the beginning of the, of, the, of the Atlantic season. So a lot more to come. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, just looking at some of the damage already done, uh, it looks uh, pretty devastating. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us. Appreciate your insights. 
Right, tensions between the U.S. and China are rising as Taiwan signals it plans to deepen security ties with the United States. U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth met with Taiwan's president earlier following an unannounced visit. On Monday, Taipei accused China of sending dozens of military planes into Taiwan's air defense zone. CNN's Chrissy Liu Stout has more. A U.S. congressional delegation led by Senator Tammy Duckworth is in Taiwan for an unannounced three-day visit. They stress the importance of U.S. and Taiwan partnership on security as well as economic collaboration. On President Tsai Ing-wen, she thanked Senator Duckworth for America's donation of COVID-19 vaccines as well as U.S. support on the security front. We look forward to deeper and closer U.S.-Taiwan relations in matters of regional security. At the same time, to address the challenges of the post-pandemic era. Taiwan and the U.S. have reviewed and assessed the many facets of our trade cooperation. China slammed the visit with its embassy in Washington saying it firmly opposes it. And in a statement, a spokesperson of the Chinese embassy in the U.S. says, quote, we urge the U.S. side to earnestly abide by the one China principle and the three Sino-U.S. joint communiques handle Taiwan-related issues in a cautious and proper way, stop all forms of official interactions with Taiwan and avoid sending wrong signals to the Taiwan independent separatist forces, unquote. Now, the visit comes right after the U.S. president's visit to the region and his his assertion that the U.S. would intervene militarily if China tries to take Taiwan by force, a comment that he has made before and which was quickly downplayed again by the White House. But tension is rising in the region. On Monday, Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense said 30 Chinese warplanes made incursions into its air defense identification zone, the highest daily figure in more than four months. A Taiwan member of parliament, Wang Tingyu, calls it, quote, a very worrying trend, tweeting this, quote, the more China does this, the sooner we become used to it. And it will become increasingly difficult to determine if China is just doing their routine exercises or are they preparing to launch an attack on Taiwan? This is a very worrying trend. Now, Taiwan's president has vowed to maintain peace while adding that she will defend Taiwan if attacked. China claims Taiwan as its own territory and hasn't ruled out taking it by force if necessary. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. All right, stay with CNN. The market open is up next. Welcome back. U.S. stocks are up and running after the long Memorial Day weekend, a mostly lower open after last week's rally. On this last trading day of the month, Europe mostly lower as well. Now, global investors will be monitoring a high-level meeting in Washington today. President Biden and Fed Chair Jerome Powell meet to discuss their inflation-fighting plans. Both men need to show that they are laser-focused on bringing down the cost of living as U.S. gasoline prices spike to fresh records. Now, oil's price spike could lead to even higher prices at the pump globally. Both Brent and U.S. crude, as you can see, are up more than 3%. And that's after the EU announced its almost total ban on Russian oil imports in response to Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Art Hogan joins me. Uh, he is the chief market strategist for the National Securities Corporation. Art, really good to see you. Welcome on the show. Um, I have to say, I mean, here's a question. Where do you run and hide in this market? Um, you have said uh, in your commentary that the S&P 500 is offering big value. It's 16 times 6 times forward earnings versus the 21.5 times forward earnings that we had earlier this year. There's value 
but where to go, especially if you're trying to fight inflation? Yeah, such a great question. And I think what you really have to focus on uh, this year, and this is a bit of a new paradigm, is that you really need to focus on companies that actually have free cash flow and earnings. Last year and the last two years, arguably, there was a lot of excitement and sponsorship of those fast-growing technology companies, the pandemic darlings and the disruptors that are still pre-earnings. And, and obviously, that's the portion of the market that's been hurt the most. And I think this year is going to be a renewed focus on PEs. And oh, by the way, PEs have gotten quite reasonable, not just for the S&P 500 index, but for a lot of those household names that are the stalwarts in their industry. So I think a focus on PEs and, and a focus a bit more defensively on your um, cyclical side of, of, of your barbell approach. Uh, growth with PEs and cyclicality that really makes sense, I think, is going to be the best way to approach the next 12 to 18 months. Okay, so I have to ask you this question because we're seeing this inflation coming through, which, by the way, has been a huge warning for many years, even during the financial crisis where we saw, you know, truckloads of money through quantitative easing being put into the market. We saw that during the pandemic. It's been compounded by, um, you know, commodity uh, supply issues as well and supply chain uh, issues. Wall Street was really happy when it saw all the stimulus coming through. Are you worried about this next rate hiking cycle that just needs to happen uh, to try and tame inflation? Well, yeah, the good news is the, you know, the Fed realized they uh, were behind the curve at the uh, end of November and pivoted in December. They've been very transparent about their plans to both increase uh, the Fed funds rate that they've laid out a very clear plan. The next two meetings that by uh, not reinvesting the runoff and, and, and likely telegraph that in advance so we know what the cadence and tempo of that will be. And then they'll look at the incoming data and, and see if they're, they're showing any improvement and, uh, and showing any more tightening in, in financial conditions, which is exactly the place they want to get to. So unfortunately, the Fed wants to derive some demand destruction. We're also going to see demand destruction because of those higher commodity prices. Yeah. That will slow things down and tamp down on inflation. It's not going to happen as fast as we would like but I would argue that we likely saw inflation peak in the month of March. We saw sequential improvement in the April data, and I think that will continue throughout the second quarter and the second half of this year. So while the Fed is trying to slow things down and tame inflation, a lot of demand destruction is happening with higher prices. And, and at the very same time, as consumers, we have typically over the last 25 or 30 years consumed about 65% services and 35% goods. That equation got turned on its head during the pandemic because we couldn't get out and consume services. So we're really consuming 65% goods. This is the pivot point right now where we're going back to more normalized consumption patterns. And that likely has a deflationary impact on goods pricing. So there are a lot of things working in the right direction, not as quickly as we would like. But I think the Fed's job is to be transparent and let us know what they're doing. I think they've done a very good job at that. Okay, we know the Fed has to be completely independent. We also know that the president uh, is going to be meeting with the Fed chair as well. Um, Biden wrote an op-ed, which is really interesting because he spoke about all the cycles he's lived through. What would you like to see in terms of policy and also messaging from the Fed in order you know, to calm markets in terms of where this is going? Well, I think the Fed's done a pretty good job. I think Jay Powell's gotten better with every press conference that he's held since he's been the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And I think that continues to be the important part. 
The Fed has done a good job of not trying to shock markets, not having intermarket moves or or, or actually moving uh, rates outside of consensus. I think they've done a very good job of sending out test balloons with some of the regional Fed presidents, like James Bullard, suggesting 100 basis point moves, testing the waters for that, and then actually coming back to their meetings and having consensus that 50 basis points is, is the way to go, at least in the here and now. So I think we've got a, a, a messaging from the Fed that has been very strong and deliberate. And I think that that uh, continuation of that pattern of deliberate and transparent messaging is likely what we'd like to see out of the Fed. We want them to have a consistent pattern of realizing inflation is significantly above their targets. And we also want that, that you know, we want them to let us know that they're looking at the data during each meeting that they're having and saying, where are we seeing improvement? Where are we seeing labor markets as tight as we've ever seen? Uh, are we seeing any improvement in financial conditions such that a slowing of demand because unfortunately what they're really trying to get to is attacking the demand side of the equation because they really don't have any input on the supply side of the situation where most of our inflationary inputs are coming from. Yeah, really good point. Art Hogan, really good to see you. Thanks so very much um, for that insight. That was the Chief Market Strategist for the National Securities Corporation. All right, I'd like to take you to the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel, the President of the European Council, giving a press conference right now. Let's listen in. To discuss with uh, African representatives how the European Union and the African Union could uh, cooperate as effectively as possible to meet this uh, challenge that we uh, jointly face to take measures uh, to support uh, the African countries in a spirit of partnership to help improve and strengthen the production capacities in Africa and also to ensure uh, supporting measures so that one can help avert this uh, potentially serious crisis for a number of countries. It could have a, a, a harmful effect in Africa, but also in Europe. That's one element, and you'll see the detailed conclusions on that. Uh, today is uh, the energy, and uh, we all know this is a, a fundamental challenge for all of us. Just extremely important on the on the one hand uh, to discuss uh, on the proposals uh, uh, put on the table by the Commission in order to to prepare the following steps. We Power EU is a very important initiative. We had the occasion to exchange views uh, and to uh, and to make progress on that uh, topic. And especially, uh, we understand this is extremely important to um, work uh, on, on uh, the possibility and, and to explore the possibility of import price caps also with international partners. We intend also to act in four key areas, the diversification, diversify fuels and sources in the renewables. You know, to speed up renewables uh, is, of course, uh, fundamental, but also to work in the field of energy efficiency. To save uh, energy uh, is, of course, a fundamental priority for all of us. And we are also determined to invest in infrastructure, in energy interconnections, and, of course, in renewable. 
We need also to improve our preparedness for possible major supply disruptions, and we have also asked the Commission to work on the optimization of the functioning of the European electricity market. This debate on energy was an opportunity to reaffirm our determination to pick up this challenge as Europeans. Now, we faced this challenge before the war in Ukraine, but even more so now uh, because of the uh, ongoing war in Ukraine. And then finally, the third point I wanted to, to mention concerning European defense, you will see the conclusions too in this uh, field. We share, the view, we share the view around the table that we need to spend and invest more on defense and to do so not just more but also better to act more effectively, better together as Europeans uh, involving, for example, grouped uh, procurement and also a, a serious effort to strengthen Europe's industrial uh, base in this field, taking account in particular of the role of uh, European SMEs, which can play a key role in this process. It was also an opportunity to reaffirm uh, the importance of uh, what uh, uh, complementarity between what the EU does and what NATO does. There will be a summit in Madrid, and this will no doubt be an opportunity to reaffirm this complementarity between the European Union and NATO. So these are some of the key points I wanted to share with you uh, in the immediate aftermath of the European Council, which has just concluded. Madam President. Um, you might remember that in Versailles the leaders decided to phase out the dependency on Russian fossil fuels as soon as possible. We started with coal. Yesterday, in the middle of the night, we decided then to have a ban now on de facto 90% of Russian oil imports to the European Union by the end of the year. And this comes at a time when we see that Russia has disrupted supplies to by now five member states. Um, you know Finland, Bulgaria and um, Poland, but now to a company in the Netherlands and to a company in Denmark. So our answer has to be very clear. How are we going to manage um, and what is the roadmap to really uh, get rid of the dependency of Russian fossil fuels and here with view to gas? The answer is Repower EU. It brings basically three different pillars um, that we have discussed today. The first one is the diversification away from Russian fossil fuels, specifically on gas. Here we now have set up a joint task force for common purchases, joint purchases of gas, because the market power of the whole of 27 in the European Union is much bigger than every single member state and we will achieve better conditions. Um, we have, of course, already since the beginning of the year started to look out for other more reliable suppliers, and this effort is already paying off. We see today that the LNG deliveries from other parts of the world, others than Russia, have doubled in Q1 in 2022 compared, for example, to the previous year. The second element we are working on in Repower EU is the security of supply through better interconnections so that the gas can flow wherever it is needed. And of course, the common objective to have a more strategic storage, 
um, across uh, gas storage across the European Union. Here we have good news. Our gas storage is already filled at 41% of the capacity. This is five percentage points higher than it was the case last year at the same date. And then the third is the most important pillar, and this is the massive investment in renewables. It's accelerating the deployment of renewables across the European Union. The renewable energy has the big advantage that it is not only good for the climate, but it is also good for our independence and good for our security of supply, and it creates jobs at home. So for this plan, Repower EU, we have been discussing with the Council, European Council, we are proposing to support it with 300 billion euros from EU funding. There are different parts that are contributing to this funding. If there are any questions about it, I'm very happy to respond to them, but this is the house of Repower EU that we have presented and discussed today. Basically, it is solidarity and cooperation that are at the heart of any successful strategy to deal with Russia as a non-reliable supplier anymore. Um, cooperation, for example, as has been demonstrated by Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium, who um, a couple of days ago showed at a joint wind summit what it means to develop the wind power, the offshore wind power in the North Sea. And of course, solidarity, this was a big topic today, ensuring that in case of a full disruption of gas flows from Russia, gas is indeed allowed to flow to wherever it is needed in Europe. The second topic was this, uh, defense. The war again was and is a stark reminder um, for our member states on the need to strengthen our defense capacities. We have seen positive developments, notably, of course, we are all aware of Finland's and Sweden's application to join NATO, NATO the strongest military alliance in the world, and they will benefit greatly from their membership. But also the fact that since the beginning of the war, leaders and the member states stepped up and announced by now 200 billion euros in extra military spending. Now it is important that we ensure that these stepping up and additional investment, we get the maximum value out of it. And we all know the challenges that exist within the European Union or the European model. On one hand, it is the lack of, of investment over the last years, so the gaps have to be filled. But the bigger challenge is the fragmentation we have within the European defense industry and the duplication of weapon systems. Here we see that this leads to increased cost, to reduced interoperability. So we have to improve this situation. And therefore, it is first of all helpful that since the beginning of this mandate, the European Defense Fund is up and running. It's a strong incentive to work together. The pilot programs so far um, have benefited to more than 600 entities and 26 member states have used so far the European Defence Fund. This is an encouraging start. Um, but there's also a second element now when we replenish the military material that has been sent to Ukraine, for example. It is important that this is coordinated and for that we're set, setting up a task force 
to coordinate, also to deconflict the replenishment of the national stockpiles. And the Commission will propose before end of June to mobilize 500 million euros over the next two years from the EU budget to incentivize the joint procurement by at least three member states. This is, let's say, a pilot for a longer-term proposal that will come uh, in the course of this year for a European Defence Investment Programme. Finally, the third topic uh, was on food security. Charles introduced in the whole topic already. At the moment being, we are facing one overriding urgency, and that is 20 million tons of wheat are stuck in Ukraine, and they have to get out. And therefore, we have created and we are working hard on the solidarity lines, lanes that will enable it to bring out parts of this wheat through a land route and trains towards our parts. It is not trivial and it is, of course, more tedious and expensive, but it is necessary to get this wheat out. The second point that is important that we now give relief to the vulnerable populations and um, the possibility to afford the food. For that, we have pledged 2.5 billion euros, and we, mobilize, uh, we propose to mobilize reserves from the European Development Fund to support, for example, sub-Saharan Africa. The third element in that is that we step up our own food production. We expect a record export of cereals of 40 million tons in 22 and 23. And within this scenario, we call on all partners not to restrict global trade on agricultural products. So any kind of trade restrictions have absolutely no place in our member states or globally. And finally, but this is the mid and long term, we really have to develop better strategies, uh, for example, in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, to increase the production and the resilience with new technologies, precision farming, the nanotechnologies that are there. So a lot of topics that are combined to this food topic from the urgency to the mid and to the long term. We will coordinate all our actions with the Team Europe approach to feed into this work. I will travel to Cairo mid-June to discuss all these issues with uh, President Al-Sisi because we have to look at them not only from a European, Ukraine perspective, but also from a regional and bilateral perspective. Many thanks. Thank you, Madam President. Anne Rovan, je t'invite. Tu voulais prendre la parole? Okay, Tomas, you are next. Désolé, Anne, je pensais que tu voulais prendre la parole. I have a question for both presidents of, of uh, uh, wheat export from, from, from Ukraine. Do you see any chances that uh, all these solidarity lines and calls for the EU uh, member states to, for, for help in, in the export could add up to the capacity sufficient for exporting Ukrainian wheat this year, this, this, this summer? Uh, if not, because it seems for now it's too, too, too little, what would be your comment on these ideas of, of transporting the wheat through, uh, through Belarus, uh, on the price of wheat uh, through Belarus to Baltic states? And if not, do you see any 
diplomatic possibility to uh, convince or to make uh, Russians to, to unblock Odessa port to, to export the, the wheat. Thank you. No, you are, you are absolutely right. It should be the, the first priority because uh, th there are 22 millions of tons of grains that are blocked in Ukraine, especially in Odessa. And a few weeks ago when I went to Odessa, I had the occasion to see with my own eyes what's the situation on the ground. And for instance, countries like Egypt and other countries uh, in, in Africa, uh, they are victims of this, uh, this situation. It means that we, we fully support all the efforts uh, made by the United Nations in order to find an agreement uh, to open a maritime corridor to the, to the Black Sea. It would be the best option in order to make sure it is possible to export grains. But we are not certain, we are not certain it will work. We hope it will be possible to get an agreement on that important topic, and that's why we are also working, based on the proposal of the Commission, on um, those uh, green lanes uh, in order to facilitate alternative routes. And with the leaders, uh, today and yesterday, we discussed the different possibilities in order to develop alternative routes, but we know that it's more difficult, it's more expensive, it's more difficult for obvious logistic uh, reasons, uh, and we try to facilitate uh, in order to, in order to, uh, to reduce the, the administrative burdens, uh, which, also, which is also an important question. About Belarus and the access uh, towards the Baltic Sea, uh, we understand that there were also tolls at the level of the United Nations on that, uh, on that topic, uh, and we support all these efforts, but uh, in the short term, we don't see a concrete, a concrete result, a concrete achievement. And you know that we have decided uh, sanctions uh, on Belarus, on the, on the protection of fertilizers, uh, for instance, and we think it is very important to maintain the pressure. All right, that's Charles Michel, uh, the European Council President, also Ursula von der Leyen speaking there. Really important commentary today. They announced the Repower Europe plan, $300 billion, euros rather, to wean themselves of fossil fuels from Russia. They spoke about food security to try and get grain out of Ukraine, also start increasing food production out of Europe and sorting out uh, the Africa issue when it comes to food security. And then defense was big on the agenda. We'll give you more analysis on this as the day goes on. Thanks very much for watching the show. I'm Eleni Jokos in Dubai. Connect the world with Becky Anderson up next. Take care. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.